With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. From all of us at Barca Talk, we want to extend our condolences and sympathy for Luis Enrique and his family for the loss of his daughter Shana to bone cancer. Our warmest thoughts are with you. Today on Barca Talk. The Champions League has officially begun with the group stage draw, and FC Barcelona are in a tough group. La Liga is proving to be a competitive field this year. Some of the Barcelona B stars are getting time on the first team, but their teammates are not missing them too much. Ansu Fati has become the youngest player ever to score for Barca in La Liga, but two goals from him and Arthur were not enough to take a win out of the match against Osasuna in Pamplona. First up, news. It's deadline day, and the most talked-about transfer of the summer still has not come through. Talks between FC Barcelona and Paris Saint-Germain continued last week concerning the transfer of Neymar back to Spain, but PSG sporting director Leonardo has confirmed that no deal has yet been agreed upon. The most recent offer from Barcelona was reported to include Ivan Rakitic, Jean-Claire Todibo, and Ousmane Dembélé on a one-year loan, as well as 130 million euro in cash. Dembélé had not agreed to moving to PSG until late last week after he had spoken to Thomas Tuchel. While there is still time for the clubs to reach an agreement, French newspaper L'Equipe claimed that Neymar has already told his family he will remain in France for another season. At the UEFA Champions League group stage draw on Friday, Lionel Messi and Frankie de Jong were awarded the honors of best striker and best midfielder, respectively, in the Champions League from last year. De Jong beat out Christian Eriksen of Tottenham Hotspur and Jordan Henderson of Liverpool, while Messi was chosen ahead of Cristiano Ronaldo of Juventus and Liverpool's Sadio Mane. Marc-Andre Ter Stegen was in the running for best goalkeeper, but the award went to Alison Becker of Liverpool. Virgil van Dijk of Liverpool won the Best Defender Award and the overall prize for Best Player. Messi, however, also won the Best Goal Award for his free-kick strike in the first semi-final leg against Liverpool. The results of the group stage draw put Barcelona in with Borussia Dortmund, Inter Milan, and Slavia Praga. More on that plus Barcelona B, La Liga Watch, and a full match review of Barca's 2-2 draw against Osasuna in Pamplona. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, take a minute to rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. No matter how you listen, though, remember to subscribe or follow the show so you can always stay up to date with new episodes. 
All right, this is Barca Talk. I'm Brian Henderson in Buffalo, New York, and joining me from a cave in Central California is Gabriel Quiroga. Brian, Brian, my Barca brother from another night. What's going on, man? Not much. Uh, we're dog sitting right now, and we have this beautiful, big Bernese mountain dog mm. in the house at the moment. She's uh, she's a bit of an older dog, so she's very chilled out. She is so beautiful and majestic and sweet, and it's been really nice just having her around the house. She doesn't bark at all. She's very sweet, and yes. you know, you'll just be like sitting on the couch watching TV, and you look over, and there's this big pile of fur. <laughs> Just beautifully laying low and hanging out. And it's been really nice having Fender in the house. That's her name, Fender. Nice. Her her owner, Daddy, is a big guitar enthusiast. So her name's Fender. Yeah. How are you doing, my friend? You're in a you're in this cavernous space. Yeah, my parents just moved to a new place, essentially in San Luis Obispo. So it's still kind of uh, there's just some pieces of furniture here. Uh, The basics, essentially. So that's just like a plastic chair here and there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So right now my parents actually went to the Home Depot to go make a checklist of some things they need to get, like curtains and stuff like that. So uh, so I'm home alone right now, but uh, oh. it's been good. It's been good. Uh, it's been great to uh, see my family. And of course, uh, one of the highlights already has been the uh, Mexican food. I've already demolished two burritos. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. So you're home alone. Have you been playing loud music and dancing around in your underwear? I have. I have. This, sure. this, actually, you know what? This family room would be perfect to do the Tom Cruise risky business. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can see one thing that your parents do not need from the Home Depot, and that is white paint. Man, they love white. They do. <laughs> they love it so much. I, was, I had an argument with my mom last night about trying to make the family room cozy. You know, instead of trying to make it a museum, because in the previous houses that my parents lived in, it was the same feeling. It's just not a very cozy house because my mom was like, like she likes clean lines and she likes it very clean. So like if you put a a drink on the table, for example, she's like she flips out, you know. (laughs) So, so, you know, uh, I was trying to give her some design advice and she uh, basically shop locked that. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like she's a, a modernist. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Really into the modern style. That is true. Man, yeah, it is it is clean, but it <laughs> you make sacrifices. Exactly, exactly. Well, so I figured today uh, we would start the show off by talking about the Champions League group stage draw. I mentioned this in the news segment. Uh, Barcelona were drawn, it was happened on Friday, with... Borussia Dortmund, Inter Milan, and Slavia Praha. And I actually want to talk about each one of these clubs individually, starting with Slavia Praha, uh, or Prague. They are the current champions of the Czech First League, and after missing out on Champions League qualifying last year, they made it to the quarterfinals in Europa League when they were knocked out by the eventual winners, Chelsea. And the last time they were in the Champions was 2007, when they didn't make it out of the group stage. And this is the first matchup between Barcelona and Slavia Prague ever. So I know how closely you follow Czech football. I know that's one of your favorite leagues after La Liga. So do you know anything about Slavia Prague? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I, I, I even tried to look up the roster to see if there was at least one person I knew. And basically what I came away with is that there's a lot of Czechs on the <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Sure. Yeah, I, I have to admit ignorance here. I I do know that I uh, I saw a little news item that mentioned that the I don't know if it was the manager or the president of of the club when when they got drawn with 
with Barcelona and Dortmund and Inter Milan, he was just laughing. He was like, <laughs> he was like oh, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is a hard group. It is a hard group. I don't know anything about them. Obviously, they are the lower-rung team of the group, you know, for sure. But, again, uh, for them, they're just happy to be there. They, they also get the exposure as well. So uh, that's all I know about them. I don't really know anything about the Czech League, unfortunately. Sure, sure. No, that's understandable. They're definitely a, a pot four club because uh, they have the pots one, sure. two, three, and four to to select to get these matchups going. So we're going to learn more about them this year as we see them operate, at least in the group stage. Uh, given this group, I think the, the chances that they'll make it out of group stage are extremely low, but we will get to see them play at least three games or t- at least two games against Barcelona. Um, and if if you're really into it, you could watch all six of their games. But mm. we'll get to know them a little bit more uh, as the group stage happens. But, so let's turn to Inter Milan. We're in the same group for the second year in a row. We were in the same group with them last year. And last year, Barca won uh, 2-0. And then they drew 1-1 in the second leg of the group stage. Inter did not have a great year last year. They finished Serie A in fourth. And they were sent from the Champions League to the Europa League where they were knocked out in the round of 16 by Eintracht Frankfurt. But this year, they've brought in Antonio Conte to manage. So do you think Conte is going to turn into a round a little bit? I do. I do. I, I think this is going to be our biggest rival in this group for the leader, the top spot in the group stage. Um, you know, they brought in some players uh, like Godin, Bukaku, and obviously Alexis Sanchez just recently. Conte is always very defensive and he always can come up with a good game plan, especially on a one game off. So definitely I think Conte will turn into a round. The other thing too is for me, you know, especially since our away form lately has been really bad in the last two years, especially in Champions League. I think the matchup at Milan this time could be a really tough one as well. So, you know, they're, they are contending for the Serie A championship this year. They're, they have a tough team. And I think especially since uh, they're a very physical team, they could give us a lot of trouble. Yeah, so it seems like they're probably going to, they might fare a little bit better uh, in this group stage against us, at least, than they did last year, which means they could actually get ahead. But uh, for me, if it, if I were picking, I would actually say that Borussia Dortmund would be the, the more difficult opponent in this group. Their manager, Lucien Favre, came aboard last year, took them to second place in the Bundesliga, just two points behind Bayern Munich, and they topped their their group last year in Champions, beating out Atletico Madrid, Bruges, and Monaco. They were knocked out in the round of 16 by the eventual finalists, Tottenham Hotspur, and their results have really improved from the previous year when they finished Bundesliga in fourth, and they were sent to Europa League. So it, it seems as though Favre, his, his sides tend to play a, a really dynamic, fast-paced attacking style uh, in their first matches of this year. Of course, it's not much to go on, but in what little uh, they've done so far this year, uh, they've been in a 4-2-3-1 formation, and they do have three major goal-scoring threats in Jadon Sancho, Marco Reus, and our old pal, Paco Alcácer. So this will be the first time Barcelona have ever actually faced Dortmund in the Champions League, and they're playing on match day one in mid-September. So are you, are you worried? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm really just, especially after yesterday's performance, I'm just really worried about all the way matches now going forward with Valverde. And the other thing, too, is, you know, you look at Inter. They're physical with Godin and Lukaku, those players. And then we look at Dortmund, and they're going to be fast-paced and reckless. Like, they're not going to be defensive-minded as, as, you know, Normally, they're not really defensive-minded, but they're more of attacking and loose style. 
Again, it's more about our lineup. What are we going to do? And that's going to dictate how difficult the matches are. Now, on paper, we should win this, this group. You know, on paper, we have the best talent and we have the most experience, but we never know. And especially the away match, playing at Dorman is super difficult, super difficult. Playing at Inter is super difficult as well. And they're going to be up for it. They're not scared of us anymore. They don't, we don't have that, you know, invincibility like we used to with Xavi, Iniesta, and Busquets back in the day. Now we are touchable and these teams bring it to us. And as we've seen in the last couple of years in Champions League run, we have been unsuccessful because these teams come to play. And remember, it's just a one game off type of scenario. It's not a long season. So, Ryan, I'm scared for mostly Inter. I think that's who's going to give us a trouble, but also Dortmund is also going to give us trouble with their fast pace play. Yeah, so do you think there's a chance that that is that getting out of the group is going to be hard? Yes. Yes, it's going to be very hard. That's that hasn't happened in a while. I know it hasn't happened in a while, and especially, you know, with Messi's injury and Suarez's injury and the way we've just been playing these past three games, you know, you never know, right? We never know. And the thing is, you know, we've always been penciled in to be out of the group stage in Champions League, but this could be a very difficult draw for us, especially, you know, let's say if Messi doesn't come back till October, you know, you know, we start to play these champions match and then we have to figure ourselves out. Dortmund's already running high. Inter's already running high and we got to figure our, our own strategy, you know? So that's going to be the difficult for me. I, you know, for me, the away matches are just going to be really, really tough. Yeah. And like you mentioned the last couple of years, it just seems like we've done very poorly, um, on the away legs in La Liga as well as Champions yeah. League, even in Copa del Rey, just something about leaving Barcelona. Uh, there's been a, a very clear weakness in the club the last couple of years. And I still think that that has something to do with the manager because mm-hmm. you can leave home, you could be on unfamiliar territory. Every player has done this. Every player has this experience. But I think a very significant detail would be how the manager one prepares the team to go away and that includes all kinds of things like when they leave barcelona how long are they in the other place what are the what are the accommodations what's the training schedule but all but all the way down to the the team talk right before the game i think you need to really fire your team up when they're on the road and we don't know but it just seems like valverde isn't the firing up kind <laughs> not at all not at all seems like a very reasonable man. Well, let me ask you this, Brian. Let's just look at the two coaches of Inter and Borussia. Do you think those two coaches could outcoach Valverde? I think Conte definitely could. Yeah. Uh, Favre is a slightly more uh, unknown quantity to me, although he has really worked his way up in the world of football management from smaller clubs, and now he's at a pretty much the second biggest club in Germany, which is not a bad achievement. And he seems to get good results in a lot of places he goes. So I do think that both of them, definitely Conte and maybe even Favre, could outmanage Valverde. So imagine this scenario. Imagine it's a one-off game, right? Imagine it's at Borussia. I would would have more faith that Favre would do something dramatic or something different to make a difference in the game prior to that because he sees something on film rather than Evie. Evie is just going to roll out the same lineup and just do the same thing, right? And I also think Conte would do the same thing. So if it comes down to the last two or three matches in the group stage and we have to win these points, it's going to be very dicey, very dicey. And that's, that's the thing. You know, more and more I lose confidence in Valverde's coaching ability to find weaknesses in other teams because he doesn't do that. 
whereas other teams continually do that to us. For example, yesterday's match. And also, when you give a team, especially in Champions League, some time to scout you, they will find weaknesses. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't seem like he's ever really exploiting any particular weakness. And he tends to not close up our own weaknesses. He picks his 11. Sometimes we wonder why. Sometimes we don't. But <laughs> but yeah. he picks his 11. And he is he makes efforts during the match. Uh, you know, you see him waving and yelling and there are things happening. But I think you're right. I don't think it's tactical. I think it's almost just a matter of him saying, like, do this better. Yeah, exactly. Rather than saying, shift back three yards, look for this, you know, exploit that, close that gap up. I don't know. I mean, just think about, again, the Liverpool match with that famous corner kick, right? Mm -hmm. So Klopp was able to find a minor little thing, and that was a huge game changer, right? In the whole career of Valverde, has he ever done anything for us in Barcelona for that, where you're like, wow, that was an amazing tactical thing that he saw previous that he can exploit enters right back. No. You know what I'm saying? Or Borussia's no. midfield. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's never doing that. He's always implementing the same formation and just riding the talent, which is fine for the majority of the time. But as we've seen with Champions League, the teams are so even, you have to be able to just find a, a, a switch, an advantage, a tactic, a quick formation, a quick sub. And oftentimes, he's not able to do that. He's always kind of riding the long game of things as opposing the urgency, especially in Champions League, as we've seen in the last two years. Yeah, that's the razor's edge. And sometimes that's all you need is that much of an edge. And that's exactly what Klopp got last year against us. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. so to answer your question, when I, when I saw this group stage draw and so forth, I was, you know, like I said, Inter and Borussia are the two teams that obviously scare me. And also just our latest form and the way that we are still trying to find ourselves, whereas these teams are in a, in a better situation because they know they're starting 11 and they know they style you know, and that goes a long way when you play in this type of tournament. Share this episode with a friend. No matter how you're listening, Apple, Spotify, one of the many Android apps, tap that share button and send a link. Thanks. While Carlos Perez is more or less on loan to the first team from Barca B, the second squad isn't missing him too much. The club's investment in youth appears to be on the upswing this year. Here with a report on Barca B is Max Bluer. The Estadio Johan Cruyff, which is the new home of Barca B and Barca Femini, was built over the summer to replace the old mini estadio, capable of seating 6,000, all of whom will be protected from the elements by a roof that does not leave a single seat uncovered, unlike in the Camp Nou. The stadium is a welcome upgrade on a mini study that was starting to show its age. The grass on the pitch will be intertwined with some artificial fibres, presumably to improve durability. The most exciting thing about the new stadium, though, is undoubtedly its name. An homage to the grey man has been planned ever since his death in 2016, and together with the statue to Johan Cruyff unveiled outside the Camp Nou last week, seems to represent an attempt by the board to refocus the club on its traditions. Or at least that's certainly what Bartomeu would like us to think. It surely is no coincidence that at a time when the president's popularity is arguably at its lowest ever ebb, the club is playing to the galleries with gestures of this type. And that's without even mentioning the attempts to sign Neymar. Of course, the best way to honour the Flying Dutchman is to put La Masia back in its rightful place as the most important provider of players for the first team. And to be fair, it looks like the youngsters are going to play far more of a role this year than they have in seasons past. It just makes sense, from every angle. Everyone loves a youth product, and there's always a buzz around Camp Nou when a young kid makes his debut. It's also depressingly but inevitably, good for the brand. If the Mesquion Club slogan that is writ large across the seats at both the Camp Nou and the Estadio Johan Cruyff is to mean anything, 
Barca has to keep its ideals alive, ideals that include a healthy production line at La Masia. But perhaps most importantly for the directors, it makes sense financially too. Although Barca are offering up some hefty contracts to the likes of Ansu Fati and Ilaish Moriba, using youth players to complement the stars of the first team is a lot cheaper than padding out the squad of Deadwood like Kevin Prince-Boseng or even Felipe Coutinho. Barcelona Football Club spent over 75% of its turnover on player wages last season, a figure that has been as high as 84% in the recent past, one of the highest percentages in Europe and way more than the recommended 60 Such generosity is unsustainable and the wage bill needs to be cut and there's no better way of doing that than promoting youngsters, who tend not to mind being paid little less than their market value when they're at the club of their dreams. The club finally seems to have realised the myriad benefits of putting its trust in youth, with the likes of Carles Alenia, Carles Perez, Iñaki Peña and above all Ansu Fati, all playing an important part in the opening stages of the season. And boy, what a part have they played. The first team produced a feast of football last weekend that saw Carles Perez get on the score sheet in a fine performance on his first start at Camp Nou, while 16-year-old Ansu Fati also came on for the final few minutes and looked right at home. Even though, as he came on for Perez in the 78th minute, he was grinning like a madman and high-fiving everything that moved. But that was nothing compared to the Osasuna game on Saturday when Ansu came on at half-time and scored the equaliser with a towering header. As he ran back to the halfway line after scoring, the TV cameras focused on him, saying, I don't believe it, to himself. To be honest, Ansu, neither could we. But Barca Bear didn't miss their teammates. A 2-0 victory away at Badalona saw Garcia Pimienta's boys produce some sublime football, with that man Ricky Puj to the fore. A second-half moment in which he stole the ball in midfield, bamboozled the centre-back with a step-over, and flicked the ball up and over the goalie, deserved a goal, although sadly the ball nestled on the roof of the net. But no matter... Abel Ruiz, for whom it's a vital season in his Barca career, had already backheeled in a cross in the second minute, and a midfield of Puj, Monchu, and new signing Ludovic Race took control of the game. Although it wasn't until injury time that Kike Saverio wrapped things up with a goal on the break, the victory was never seriously in doubt. Another highlight from the match was the return of Ferran Saicenedas, the midfielder playing his first game since cruciate ligament injury suffered last season. Two players who were stars last year but didn't play a part were Oriol Busquets and Juan Miranda. Busquets has gone on a season-long loan to FC20, where he joins four other La Masia graduates that the Dutch club has signed this summer, while Miranda is off to Schalke for two seasons, although Barca do have the option of unilaterally bringing him back home after the first season. Barca Bear's next game is away at Egea, before they host AE Pratt the weekend after. For Barca Talk, I'm Max Bluer. La Liga is off to a competitive start. Athletic club have been topping the table, and newly promoted clubs Osasuna and Granada are still in the top 10, while Lorenzo Moron Garcia of Real Betis is topping the scoring charts with three goals. So apart from the usual suspects, Athletic Club de Bilbao might be a team to watch this season uh, with a good start, two wins and a draw. Do you think that Gaisca Garitano will get better results in his second year managing Athletic? No, I don't. Um, I think, you know, I think it's a really good start for Athletic. But as we talked about when they played us, they had a true preseason, right? They don't really travel. They just focus on those games. And I think, you know, the early season benefits the smaller teams. It always kind of does. You're still trying to figure them out and so forth. I, obviously, Athletic Bilbao has been playing well, but they always have their starting strict 11. And I think as the season grows, they'll start to fade away. But I still think they'll be able to apply for the Europa League position. But as leaders, I just don't feel as confident just because we've seen this in the past couple of years, teams to start really hot and then fade away because of death and injuries. And also just the season is so long. So... You know, I think that they'll kind of falter a little bit, but I still definitely think they'll be right in the thick of things. Yeah, because they didn't finish very well last year, but maybe if they could get in the top five, that would be an improvement over last year. That'd be good for them. But you're right that, sure, they're they're all very fresh. 
at the beginning of the season, but as things wear on and Europa League kicks up and then Copa del Rey kicks up in the second half of the season, the schedule gets more demanding. Their depth issues are going to start causing them problems and they're going to start losing ground. Yeah, with that, with athletic more than any other team, right? Because they can only sign Basque players. Like that's their crew, right? So with that being said, you know, if let's say Inaki Williams gets hurt, then the next man comes up is obviously not going to be as good, right? And also their depth is, like you said, it's it's a little bit shallow because of this Basque signing player policy that they have. Again, they've been using the same core players for like the last five years and they've had different coaches. So again, usually the trend is, with a new coach there, Athletic, they have a great season, and then the following season they falter just because it's always the same. They have no one really pushing them because, again, of this Basque player policy. So they're off to a good start. So this is kind of bucking the trend, but we'll see how they finish. I'm curious to see how they are at the end of November. Sure. And I do think it's worth mentioning, though, that even with that Basque-only policy, it is kind of amazing that they're one of only three clubs that have never been relegated from La Liga. For sure. For sure. I mean, they, I mean, there's there's always a hotbed of players there. But also, you know, especially with their stadium with the Samamez, they have the resources to keep things going, you know? So it's not as, I wouldn't say it's as di- not as dire as like Ibar's stadium in that kind of environment where it's like, it's, it's amazing that they're still up, you know what I'm saying, with the amount of... Uh, financing that they don't have, you know, but yes, you're right. You know, it's a pretty amazing feat. And I I think that's really cool. I have a friend from Bilbao and I I love his passion that he has for his team. And also that they're so proud of that Basque only policy of players. Yeah. But also if you have a Basque only policy, it does seem like then that's going to inform your sporting decisions in a very different way because they also have a very strong academy of local Basque only players because they know that this is the pretty much the only way that they're going to feed the first team. So it's designed top to bottom to be for Basque only players. And I mean, maybe they can't in the current, you know, global footballing or even European footballing economy. Maybe they won't necessarily be able to win La Liga. They might be able to win a Copa del Rey. Champions League seems further and further away, but at least they have their philosophy. They have their policies and ethos and they design everything around it. So it tends to work out pretty well for them, even if they don't get a lot of trophies. For sure. For sure. They just, as my friend was telling me, they usually kind of just pick the big matches that they want to win because they know La Liga is elusive. They also know Champions League is never really going to happen because they cannot compete at the levels of the European giants, you know? And so he was telling me, you know, uh, for example, when they beat Barcelona, he was texting me and he was super happy with that. You know, they're happy with these matchups that they have as opposed to the length of the season and trying to win the title because they know it's really difficult. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, uh, Real Betis have had a poor start, two losses and one win. And I was actually kind of expecting a little bit more from them. But they do have a new manager this year. Ruby has taken over for Kike Setien. So do you think that they're actually going to get into a groove and start gaining some places on the table? No. No? No. I think I think their biggest mistake was realizing how good Setien was with that team because they had such a unique style of football that was perfect for their blend of players. And that's really hard to find. And when you find that, obviously, you know, in some games they weren't as consistent, but they were really fun to watch, Brian. And they scored a lot of goals. And that's really hard to find. Now, Ruby is a completely different style coach. He's, he was at Espanol before. And he's, he's definitely more pragmatic. You know, that's just more his style. And so he's basically kind of neutered the team a little bit from the flair and exciting play that they had. And it's nothing... You know, he's just trying to be more conservative because he doesn't want to allow so many goals. But by doing that, he changed the formation, the philosophy. And now 
they're not scoring any goals and obviously they're just not doing well. So to me, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things. It's, you know, everyone was pushing them out the door last season, Betty's followers. And now you have boring football and you're losing, you know, right. one of those things like, you know, you know, when you're not going to be that great of a team, I'd rather be really exciting of a team and have potential for games, especially, you know, when they, when they came to the camp, no last year, than have just this typical four, four, two, we're not going to make any mistakes and hold on for dear life for a tie. Do you think there's any chance that Betis would bring Setien back? Ooh, that's interesting. Probably not. I mean, I think, you know, Setien, that was just really messy, especially the last five games of the season, especially in Spain with all the media. And they kept asking him, are you coming? Are you staying? He's like, I'm fine. He's like, I want to stay. It's it's up to the Betis. It's not up to me. It's, you know, the type of thing. And right. again, I mean, you know, playing with three in the back was something you know, everyone was like, wow, that's crazy and stuff. But it worked for them because he had the personnel to do that. And the players, you can just tell, had so much fun playing it. Now they're not. And you can kind of see that, you know, it's this type of one of those things. And it's unfortunate because Ruby's a good coach. And, you know, it's one of those things where maybe he should have stayed at Espanol. Yeah, probably be better off because yeah. that's it seems like that club and even those fans are very comfortable with that, with his style. For sure. So he'd be comfortable. The players would be comfortable. The fans are comfortable. Everyone's exactly. happy. Like, yeah. for, example, I, for example, I can see Ruby getting fired in November. And then that's <laughs> kind of a loss, you know, for him. And unfortunately, because he's a really good coach, you know, for, for that mid-level type of team. But like I said, maybe, you know, sometimes you swing too hard for the fences, you know, you kind of over, what is that, over your pay grade type of thing, you know? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and this could be yeah. the case for that, you know? Yeah. Well, finally, Atletico Madrid, they were two goals down against Ibar on Sunday, which I was happy about. But then Joao Felix and Vitolo equalized, and Thomas got a third in the 90th minute to make Atleti the only club in the league with a perfect record at the moment. So they've made some notable changes at Atleti. Longtime right back Juan Fran has been replaced with Kieran Trippier, and Diego Simeone has compensated for the loss of Antoine Griezmann through a couple of different ways, uh, certainly with Joao Felix. They also still have one of the best goalkeepers in the league, if not the world, in Jan Oblak. So with all of these good results early on, do you think that Atleti are going to be making a stronger play for the championship this year? Yes, for sure. They scare me. They scare me big time. Because in this match, Brian, Simeone made three subs and two tactical changes on the fly. You know, And that's the type of thing, you know, as we, we always joke around, we know they're going to win one nothing. Right. We always right. like that. Right. But at least, you know, the thing is, you know, in football, Brian, it's super hard to have a style. It just really is because of the players and so forth, especially at this, this world, this world level of, you know, so many players coming and going every season. But, you know, Atleti has been able to identify a style and they keep that style. And I think the players that they have now are younger and more exciting, especially Jao Felix, Trippier. When I was watching the game before we were recording, I was just, I was, I was scared. I was like, you have Diego Costa up top. You have Joe Felix running off of him. They brought in Thomas Party, who I think has the best name ever. I, I love that name so much, Thomas Party. And he scored the <laughs> game winner for them, you know? Yeah. And the thing is, one thing you can always count on Letty is the way they scrap, you know, scrap and claw to get in the game at victory. We know I started watching the match at halftime. It was 2-1. And I was like, perfect. Ibar, just hold on for the tie. Help us with points. And Madrid, you know, Cholo tried different things. He experimented. He moved stuff around. He'd sub players in and out. And he was able to get the three points. And again, it's 
they're going to be really, really difficult for us, Brian, this year, especially now with the nine point lead. They're going to have a bit, a bit of a wiggle room now, especially the way we have been playing and also Real Madrid and so forth. So it's going to be really interesting. They're the club that definitely scares me the most uh, out of all the Liga teams this year so far. Yeah. And where would you put Atleti in terms of depth? Because once we have Messi, Suarez, Dembele, once we have all those guys back from injury, our depth starts to look better. And even though Valverde often doesn't make the most out of that depth, we do at least have it. So how would you compare Barcelona with with Atleti in terms of depth? Yeah, I would say it's very comparable, actually, because the one thing that Cholo does do is he does use the depth. I mean, for example, he brought in Riquelme. Yeah, this kid. You know what I'm saying? He brought in Thomas Party, you know, and then he also brought in Vitolo at halftime. So, you know, the thing is, it's, it's interesting because Cholo, once he likes you and wants to use you, he's going to use you. You know, he always uses different lineups and so forth. However, once you get in the doghouse, forget about it. You're never going to come out of it. Um, but, you know, with these young players like Lamar, um, Raquel, maybe we saw Joel and Felix, they have such a nice young core. Now they also have Koke, Saul, and Diego Costa. They have the veterans, you know, and they're not even veterans. I think they're like 28, you know, so it's like they have a good group. And, and the thing is, one thing I always envy of them is the physicality and also just the way they always are able to just put everything into each match. It doesn't matter, you know, and that, and that is something unique to Atleti and more importantly to Cholo. Yeah, they always, always play hard Correct. for all 90 minutes. Correct, correct. That music must mean it's time for the Barca Talk Guard of Honor, where we thank our supporters from Patreon. Today we're honoring Tara Grant, the newest member of our Patreon community. Please accept this paseo. To receive the Guard of Honor yourself, become a patron of Barca Talk. Find a link in the notes for this episode or go to the support page at barsatalk.net to sign up for the patron experience. So let's drill down into La Liga match day three for FC Barcelona against Osasuna on the road in El Sadar. It was a 2-2 draw. And looking at uh, Barcelona's status in the league at the end of this, you know, Osasuna have won more points than Barcelona after this. They're off to a good start in La Liga. Barca are sitting in seventh place as of the time we're recording with only four points. So just to run down some key stats from the match, Barcelona had possession 74.5% to Osasuna's 25.5%. Barca had 15 shots, but only five on target. Osasuna only eight shots, but four were on on target. So the on-target shooting was almost equal, and the pass accuracy was um, a big dip from last week. Only 87% for Barcelona. Meanwhile, Osasuna had a pretty bad passing accuracy stat. All I don't know, maybe good for them, but 62.7%. So on all of these key stats, apart from the scoreline, uh, we seem to be looking a lot better. But, you know, of course, the only one that really matters is the scoreline. So talking about the lineup, Valverde went with the same exact lineup as the one that did so well against Real Betis last week, but their performance was very different. In the first half, Barcelona didn't have a single shot on target. The first goal came off the head of our 16-year-old phenom on Sufati. He came on at the top of the second half for Nelson Semedo, and then the second goal came from another substitution, Arthur. So, was this starting 11, or certain members of it, not up for the match, or was Osasuna just more well-prepared for that lineup? 
Remember I told you how difficult this match was going to be and not just to wash it over? Yep. Okay. And the other thing too, I was watching the, you know, I was watching BN here and they asked the the people on the, the panel, they're like, oh, who's going to win? And the one lady said, oh, Barcelona 4 nothing," And the other guy was like, well, I wouldn't be so sure. This is, and I, like I said, last year they won Segunda. They're a good team. That place is a tough place to play. But, you know, besides that, I'm kind of torn, Brian, because I thought going with the same lineup, especially after the Betis performance, I said, okay, give them the same kind of reps. Maybe they'll do better this game. But it was clear again that Evie didn't have them prepared for the away game. So for me, I guess Rafinha is my only question because he's not a forward. You know, right. just looking at the lineup, just at the lineup. To me, if you think Fati is a good enough player, just start him. You know, he is a forward. We are needed of forwards. And I get that, that he doesn't want to start him. But at the same time, Rafina again, showed to me, especially in this match, of what he is. He is has flashes against Betis and does well, but consistently cannot put an imprint on the game. So that would be my only question, would be Rafinha at forward. It wasn't so much they were up for it, but again, as we talked about in the Champions League segment, all these teams in La Liga always try to find something against us. And in this case, they were exploited Semedo and they did a high press. And it seemed as though Valverde didn't know about it and was completely surprised by it. <laughs> right. Well, speaking of that, you know, because if we try to talk about the tactical formation and strategy, it is kind of hard to do because even though Barcelona had more possession, it was another case of really fragmented possession. They weren't putting together any significant stretches. So I had a hard time sort of really seeing what the plan seemed to be. So how would you describe what Barcelona were trying to do in this match? I have no idea, Brian. This was, you know, again, you know, we talked about this in the beginning. This is with EV's style of football. It's becoming more of a chore to watch these games than it used to be, where we saw the passing, the elegance of the attack and all this type of thing. And in this first half, it was just caca. You know, it was, just, right. it, was, it was just, again, I don't know what he's trying to do. You know, as I've talked to you before, is he trying to possess the ball? Is he trying to attack the ball? And the, with this lineup, to me, it's showing that, okay, we don't have the players that want to play and we're just playing for the tie. This is what this lineup showed me. And especially the way they started, Brian, again, Fragmented possession, as you said, the passing, we looked lackadaisical and Osasuna was up for it. Just like I told you, this is early in the season. They're a good team and they pressed us. And again, we made a mistake. We go one nothing. out of the six halves that we played. We've only played one good half, essentially, maybe two in the second half. But again, we have been down early in each of these games. And Valverde has not prepared these teams. So again, if you're going to go with a 4-3-3 like he did in this match, use forwards. Like Carlos Perez had a good, he had, he was decent for me. You know, again, he's young. He's still going to have growing pains. And he did have some in the early parts. But again, Brian, why isn't Rakitic playing? Why isn't Artur playing? Why, you know, we have better midfielders to play in this match, especially in a way match. And you know, you need the points. So for me, those are, the puzzling things that I keep thinking about. And again, this first half was we were getting dominated by Osasuna, even though we had more possession. Right. And you know, what's strange is that how in, in the, in Valverde's first year, he would often uh, switch to a four, four, two, uh, if there were injuries or if it was big games, but now he seems almost dogmatically committed to the 4-3-3. And there's a really open question as to why he would be doing this. The only thing that makes a whole lot of sense to me 
but of course I'm not Vel- I'm not in Valverde's position and I'm, and I'm not him but the only thing that would make sense to me is that he's succumbing to some kind of club pressure to have this particular uh formation because it's part of the club's brand more than their identity actually brand the the kind of public image sure. of the club is that we do a 4-3-3 even though in that first year he was sometimes switching to a 4-4-2 and getting good results out of it and he, at the moment he, like you said with Rafinha he doesn't have the players given the injuries to really line up a serious 4-3-3 unless he's going to be willing to start Fati Exactly. And again, in this match, just like in the previous match, like I said, if you're going to start Rafinha, just go to a 4-4-2. It puts him in a better position. It puts us more sound defensively because now we have four midfielders, you know? And like you said, remember back in the day with my favorite player, Paulinho, we were able to get good results, you know, when he switched to a 4-4-2. Even though at the time we were kind of up in arms about it, but it got the results. And now it's we appreciated eventually, you know, not at first, but eventually we appreciated his ability to adjust to the 4-4-2 when needed, you know? And now, like you said, it's just strictly 4-3-3, but he's picking the wrong players for the 4-3-3. So again, it's just kind of flat, you know? Like, for example, for me in this 4-3-3 midfield, for me, all the midfielders didn't have any type of impact in the game. Your boy, unfortunately, Sergio Roberto, you know, he does have great moments, but consistently he cannot put his fingerprints in the match and overwhelm that right side. Right. And now here's something that I did notice about Sergi is because, as you know, I watch him a little closer than I watch other players. <laughs> uh, he he has this tendency to make these great runs, but he wasn't getting any service. Is that because he's making these runs when he probably shouldn't because there isn't a clear pass for him? Or is it that the guys with the ball aren't seeing the runs, they're not ready for them or they don't trust him? So it's a combination of a bunch of things. So let me let me ask you this. When Arthur came into the match you saw the tempo and also the shorter passing that was happening, right? Oh, yeah. Now, when he wasn't in there, Busquets is the one that is managing where the ball is going. And when Roberto was trying to do these runs, he's further away. So you have more chances of making mistakes and losing that passing accuracy that you usually do. Sergio Roberto is a, you know, he's a Swiss army knife, you know? So it's, I really like his ability, but I'm starting to think more and more that he just needs to stay at right back because when he is at right back, we have better possession than Semedo. You know, it's one of those things. Again, I would have preferred to have Rakitic playing in the right side rather than Sergio Roberto because I just think he's a better player and he's just more physical and he knows what to do. With this 4-3-3, like Busquets had another bad performance as well. You know, he was his passing was just not as fluid as it normally is. And again, it's just the combination of the players not coming back to the ball as much and having that tempo, you know, going forward. Right. And the the one thing that I would bring up about Rakitic is that he is getting older, mm-hmm. right, as is Busquets. And we can see that these guys are, you know, probably phasing out and doing that in a graceful way is almost impossible. So yeah. you're you're going to have some ugly games. You're going to have some poor performances. But, you know, you go week to week and you do your best. But at the same time, if you know that you're trying, you're thinking about kind of phasing out Rakitic and you're trying to really get Sergio Roberto worked into that midfield don't you have to and this is I'm just using him as an example but this is true in any position across you know anywhere in the field don't you have to sort of go through those those growing pains of working someone into a position that they haven't really been playing much the last five years for sure for sure and you know it's 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 one of those things where 
you know, with Rakitic, especially, I just, you know, I, I just miss his physicality there on the right side to be able to hold the ball and play on the right side. And Sergio Roberto is just not doing that because again, like you said, he's just getting more minutes there in the midfield, you know, but you can see the combination of him and Semedo is lacking a little bit on the right side. And then also with Perez, it's a new player. So it's going through this, this idea for me, Roberto needs to be more, he needs to come back to the ball more and receive the ball just like Artur does. I mean, you saw Artur coming back, dancing in and out, subbing tempo, this and that left. And Sergio Roberto needs to do that more because that is another aspect of a midfielder in this Barca 4-3-3. It's not only being able to have really great control and touch passing, but it's also always coming back to the ball and moving around, coming back to the ball and moving around because that is always going to make the defense difficult for, for them to mark you. And so I think Sergio Roberto is lacking that. But again... Again, it's a, it's like it's kind of a no-win situation because what if Rakitic plays and we still have the same result? Then we start saying, "Oh, we should put Sergio Roberto." And again, right. I, don't, I don't know what the answer is, but again, I, it's really troubling for two things, Brian. It's the lack of motivation for away games lately, especially in the last two years, and also just the that there's no identity to what we're doing when we're trying to play. You know, today when I was watching. I was watching Chelsea, or not Chelsea, I was watching Arsenal and Tottenham. You know, you definitely know the styles that they have. They can't possess like Barcelona does, but it's kind of like one of those things, would you rather have a team that's going to take chances and try to score or possess and do nothing? Because remember, in the first half, they barely had any shots on goal, and Griezmann was a non-player. Right, right. And also, you know, come to think of it, I've been giving him kind of a pass the last couple of weeks, but now I'm starting to notice that Frankie de Jong even though he's been getting a lot of minutes, has been sort of absent. He always looks good and graceful when he's on the ball, but I think there's something about his movement that he's still learning. And I'm not trying to say don't you know yeah. don't let him play, take him out, take him out of the starting eleven, whatever. I'm not saying any of that, but it is interesting that he he was one of our more high profile signings over the transfer window, and so far he's been pretty quiet. For sure, I mean Brian, he's playing a position. You know, he's supposed to be playing in the Busquets role, that center, you know, and that's where he thrives. And so right now, you know, in the beginning of this game, he was playing on the left side and he's just not used to that. You know, in Ajax, he was always central and always directing the flow and the tempo. And so Valverde is kind of in this pickle with him in that he wants to use him. And so he's just going to put him on the field and put him on the left. And you can see he's basically punching with one arm behind his back. You know, he's Mm -hmm. just not as he's not as dangerous as you would think. And. That kind of goes back to the question that maybe it's already time for Busquets to be subbed out more. You know what I'm saying? Like to have Dijon just start and then Busquets coming in as a closer. Right, right. Or vice versa. Or vice versa, exactly. But yeah, really have that kind of cooked into a plan. Exactly. Because for me, Brian, I mean, it was apparent, you know, we're going to talk about that next about the substitutions. But as soon as Artur came, that was for me the game changer. I know Fati came and scored, but for me when Artur came, just the action the motivation the passing tempo all of a sudden was just going back and forth and left and right and all of a sudden Osasuna had to defend and they were having trouble in defending us right well you've already brought it up so let's get into it the substitutes really were the stars for Barcelona you know the first change right at halftime was to take out Semedo push Sergio Roberto to the back line Rafinha into the midfield and it paid off almost immediately when Fati took a leap in the box to connect with the cross from Carlos Perez making him the youngest ever Barca goal scorer in La Liga now the goal itself that Fati scored might justify the substitution but at the time what did you think of this choice at first 
Well, I mean, he had to do something. So I was, I was screaming, anybody come into the match, you know, someone to shake the team up a bit, obviously bringing him on and doing this, this backtrack of taking Semedo off with Sergio Roberto. I think, you know, people on Twitter were calling that as well. So I think that's kind of, you know, EV's MO, you know, basically he's always going to take Semedo off and put Sergio Roberto back. I think he just always feels the most comfortable with that. But again, Fati comes in and, you know, youth, energy, drive, wants to make a mark. And he sure did. I mean, right from the get-go, you can see just the way he was starting to dive and attack those defenders. And those defenders all of a sudden had to pay attention. And that opened up things. I don't know about you, Brian, but I, I screamed hallelujah when he, when he scored because we just needed something, you know, a spark. And, I mean, it was amazing that he was actually able to score. And, you know, it wasn't a cheap header either. It was a quality header from him. And he really deserved it. He got in between the two defenders and Paris gave him a good cross. Yeah, no, but here's the question. A couple questions, actually. Because okay. if Semedo is often the one that's coming off, is it just because of the, the kind of two-for-one deal you get by taking Semedo off and just bringing Sergio Roberto back? Or I mean, would it be better to put Musawage in there? And then there's the, well, the initial question that I was trying to ask is, is Semedo really good enough to be a Barcelona? Yeah, that is a good question. And... Again, I still think he's more physical, you know, so, you know, obviously blinding speed and just physical. I think he's just a more physical presence than Sergio Roberto, per se. But again, um, I don't know what Evie wants to do with him. You know, obviously, it's, it's very apparent that he does not trust him still because he took him right off. That never happens in world football, Brian. You never, I mean, you rarely take your right back to put in a midfielder that goes back to right back, you know, only if you're really chasing the match and it's desperation, but he does that often. So for me, I would rather just see Sergio Roberto start because I think his ball possession ability is a better attribute to have than the physicality for me, especially the link up play with the midfield. So you bring up a good question. I, this, this season is going to be an interesting season for him because they have Wage in the, in the back and they know he can play. And he is kind of a blend of Roberto and Semedo. Right. And he was on the bench. So it, it's just an interesting question. I mean, I get that he maybe he just wanted to put Fatih on there to try and create more of an attacking threat. And if you want to keep your other, you know, forward and midfield players on, I guess it makes sense to just take out Semedo, bring Sergio Roberto back because you have him there as that utility. You have Roberto there as that utility player. But I would almost wish that maybe he would have just put Wage in there, mm. in it right back. And kept Sergio Roberto in the midfield. Yeah, but moving Roberto back out of the midfield really helped open up things. Because this is the thing, Brian. He, he's, he had, I was watching him too because I was like, why isn't he not making more of an impact in the, in the match and so forth? And again, the two things for him is he's going up the field too many times when Semedo or the other middle uh, Busquets, for example, is looking to give him the ball and he can't be available. I think that's one thing. And also the other thing too is that he doesn't play enough yet with Perez, and that is really faulty. I mean, that's just because it's, it's a new partnership, you know. When he was with Dembele or so forth, he's able to link up better. But again, you're just trying to figure that out. So for me, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I just think, you know, if anything, I just feel more confident with him at right back going forward. Sure, yeah. Now, um, I wouldn't say that I have been banging the drum for Arthur, but I have scratched my head a little these last couple of weeks, wondering why he hadn't seen any minutes, particularly in the first 
two match days. So when he came on in the 53rd minute for Rafinha, I was very glad to see him coming on. He certainly didn't change the tide of the game completely, but he did score the second goal, put Barcelona ahead in the 64th minute. He also laid a very proper through ball on the carpet for Carlos Perez to finish in the 89th minute, but Perez came up short on that. So do you think that the first half would have gone better for Barcelona if Arthur had started? No. No, I don't, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Because I think really what the biggest difference was having a forward in Fati up there and Arthur, a proper midfielder that was going to hold the possession. So I think those two combinations, not just Arthur. Because if you had Rafinha up there, Rafinha is just not a threat to score. You know, he's just, he's an attacking minded midfielder, but he's not as dangerous as Fati. You saw Fati, how many times he took that guy to the end line, you know, right. that, that, that is something that as a defender, you're always scared to give up. So, and Rafinha is not doing that. Rafinha is going to try to go in the center. But to me, the, t- the one thing that was really trying for me was his stat. I think after the 70th minute, he was 21 of 22 passing, making 22 passes in a row and just, just going through the, the motions and just building up the tempo of the passing game, you know? The thing for me, the next leading passer after him was a guy from Osasuna with 12 in that moment, in that stretch. You know what right. I'm saying? So yeah. that just tells you, like, how he... I mean, for me, it was it was a no-brainer to see him come in. I mean, just if you watch the tape again, just watch him come back to the ball, go back out, and he's always running and looking. And again, that through ball was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I love the through ball, you know, uh, yeah. Carlos Perez should have done better because he should have shot it, you know, but he tried to dance with it and do too much. That's fine. He had two assists. He gets my pass for this. It's fine. But again, for me, it's again, Brian, it goes back to the, the simplest thing. Do you want to attack? Do you want to possess? Or do you want to defend? If we're going to possess our tour has to be in the starting 11. It is, he is the, our best possessive midfielder. And that is not even a question without a doubt. He is so good on the ball. How many times did he do that pirouette? He has amazing balance. Like two times that also soon a player tried to wrangle him up. He was able to keep the ball and keep his balance. I want to see him more. And also, Brian, I also posed the question on Twitter. If I would have told you at the beginning of the season that Fatih would have had more minutes combined than Rakitic and Artur, you would have told me I was crazy. Yeah. (laughs) That would be, I mean, no one would have guessed such a thing. And, you know, one complaint that you were making about Rafinha a minute ago, the fact that he doesn't take it to the end line and he always tries to work in, I have the same complaint about Carlos Perez. Mm. And I can excuse him of that a little bit more because he's younger, he's he's officially a Barca B player, so he's he's in very unfamiliar waters. Uh, So I can excuse him of that, but it is an opportunity for growth. For sure. Carlos Perez, I think, you know, the one when he did put in the the cross for Fati to score, he was pretty close to the end line. And that was one case where he was trying to work his way further down more and he was willing to go further. But for the most part, every, he would always get the ball around, you know, the top of the box wow. or in line with it and then try and cut in. And he was almost never going all the way to the end line. So we have none of that. Yeah, N- sure. nothing, none of it on the left, none of it on the right. That's, exactly. that's that's not good. Exactly. I mean, you know, the thing is, you know, I would also say Perez is a little bit stronger than Rafinha in this point, that he's always looking to shoot. I mean, he did have a couple shots blocked and a couple times where you're like, he should have passed, but he went for the shot. So I can appreciate that. But the other thing too, you know, again, it goes back to defending. If you're defending a player who's not going to take you to the end line, it is easier to defend them. They're, you know they're going to, what they're going to do. Like, for example, Jordi Alba was killing me 
in this match because he did the same thing every time. And Osasuna was just inviting him to do it and he kept doing it. He just had to like do better passing, especially in the last minute, for example. I hate to pick on Alba in this one aspect, but we just needed one good cross, you know, for this one final attempt and it gets blocked. You know, it's like yeah. these, these little things. But again, going back to the end line thing, you saw Fati go to the end line many times, at least four or five times. And that danger, that speed, that ability to cut back always will scare defenders, always. And that'll just open up everything in the middle. Again, that was my biggest complaint about Coutinho, not being able to do that. Because again, it just gives you options, you know, uh, going to the left and going to the right, because then that opens things up for Messi or Suarez, whoever's in the middle. And so, you know, Fati, man, he's he's really exciting. And he's a revelation, man, because again, he's only 16 to play these minutes. And he's just going to get more confidence, especially with the injuries that, you know, especially with international break. I would be, would you be surprised if he starts the next game? No, I would not be at this point because he's, he's come on twice now as a substitute three times, two times, two times. Yeah. He's come on twice now as a substitute and now he's scored his first goal. He's looking just so comfortable out there and threatening and exciting. So given the injury situation, no, I would not be at all surprised if he were to start the next match. I mean, think about this too, because if he starts to push the end line, then Griezmann gets more space. I mean, they bottled Griezmann up to this game because he was double teamed for the most of the time. And also he wasn't getting service as much because we didn't have good passing. Just if you, I mean, next time you watch the match, this is always the key, Brian, in the midfield is the distances between the midfield. You know, before with Xavi and Iniesta, they were maybe five yards away, four yards away, something like this. And they were always making these quick passes. And that just leads to accuracy, but also tempo. When all of a sudden the passing distances are more than 10 yards, it makes it more difficult. You have more chances of being intercepted. It's harder on your first touch, this type of thing. So it all starts with the midfield. You know, if we have our tour, I think that ultimately helps our attacking line. And also Griezmann can get wide, you know, get more chances because in this game he was bottled up and everyone was clamoring on Twitter. Where's Griezmann? Where's Griezmann? But if you watch the game, he was <laughs> because we weren't doing anything, the two central defenders had him sandwiched and he couldn't do anything. So, yeah. again, it just all relates to spacing, passing, and also just knowing who the players you're playing with. You know, everyone's still new. You know, and this is still the growing pains of it. Unfortunately, though, we cannot start slow like we have been in away matches. It's, this is something that has to change. It really has to change because, again, being down one nothing like that, Osasuna just played back and just invited us to do nothing. Right. Well, Osasuna, you know, they're the champions of the Saguna division last year, and they were playing like champions. They were very confident, self-possessed. They knew what they were about. And Roberto Torres, the joint top scorer for Osasuna last year, he got the first goal in the seventh minute, and then he put away the penalty kick in the 82nd. So I ask you this, which of those stung more? Was it Torres coming in at the far post for the first goal or Piquet being called for handling the ball in the box for the penalty? Definitely the second one because we were so close to getting the three points, you know? Yeah. Um, again, Piquet, you know, he does this a lot with his hands. And again, there's just now with the new rule change, there's just no error for it. It, it hits your hand. It's a penalty. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you were blocking your face or it's, it's, it's a handball and that's it. So, and also we were playing much better. We missed a couple chances, you know, and that to me is where it ultimately always goes in, you know, to give up the penalty. Okay. But we had some opportunities. We're just playing with shortened time. You know, if we would have had the team that we had in the second half starting, who knows what's going to happen. Maybe we have better energy. They don't get off one, nothing. 
and so forth. Again, to me, it's, it's always going to start off with Valverde's lineup and his strategy. Like, what is he trying to do? You know, I was reading the paper that, you know, Osasuna picked Semedo as someone they wanted to exploit. And like we talked about in the Champions League section, we never hear that about Valverde, you know? Right. <laughs> and the thing is, Brian, every team in La Liga is going to press us high. Every team. And we still look like it's a surprise party. Oh my gosh, they're pressing high. What do we do? What do we do? And, we, we, we always, and it takes us 20 minutes every time to get situated. And then we finally find our, feeding, but our footing. But again, it's the same thing. And, you know, that's, that to me, you know, I do a tough match. And it's going to be even tougher because, like we said, Sevilla is doing well. Atletico is doing well. Atletico is doing well. And if Real Madrid wins, you know, they're on top of us as well. So, again, we're going to have to jump these teams and we're just not playing very well. So I just don't have the confidence until Messi comes back that we'll be able to really hit our stride. All right. Now, La Liga is giving way to the international break next week. And Barca will face Valencia at the Camp Nou the following week. So what's more important, getting Messi, Suarez and Dembele back from injury or getting the healthy part of the squad working together better? Oh, my gosh. We have to play Valencia, Brian? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Uh, definitely getting the squad working together because we need to get points. That is the the most important. Man, we're playing Valencia. Jeez, we do we we can't have a, a Hitafe in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll play Hitafe eventually. <laughs> I know, but man, we we played some tough teams already from the beginning. Uh, no, I would Brian. I would definitely say getting the the team working together because once they come back, they'll definitely give us an upgrade of talent. Obviously, but. If we can get this team to get three points, especially at Valencia at home, then that would be huge, huge, huge. Yeah, I mean, that would be the best possible scenario. Thanks to Max Bluer this week. Barca Talk is a production of Sound It Media, written by Gabriel Quiroga and Brian Henderson, editing and post-production by Brian Henderson, social media and promotion by Two Point Go. Until next time, Visca Barca. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.